the Underdog Podcast from SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty. Welcome back to another episode of the Conference USA Underdog Podcast here on UnderdogDynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. And uh, as we get just a few short weeks before the start of the 2019 season, super excited to be winding down the summer with you all. Uh, looking forward to colder weather and, of course, much more college football than uh, than what we've seen in the last couple months, which is none. So with that, uh, I'll say welcome back. Excited to have uh, have you all listening to the show and hope you all enjoyed the, the media day wrap up. That was last episode. Joe Lonergan here with you as always with uh, Eric Henry. How you doing, bud? I'm doing all right, man. Can you believe it? We are five days away from the opening of FIU camp, which means camps across Conference USA can't be too far behind. Oh, uh, man, what a, what a quick offseason, man. It, it kind of, at some points, it felt like it dragged on, but, you know, like the last six, seven weeks, it felt like it was flown by with media days and all that good stuff. So happy to be here, man. It's almost football season. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like this offseason went by quicker than normal. And I, I can't tell if that, if everybody has that feeling or if it just feels that way for you and me because we were so busy. Hey, I feel like just as a whole, UDD, we've been more consistent in putting out these pod, these pods in the off season than in the last couple of years. But also, you and I have just been crazy busy, quote unquote, adulting. Um, so, yeah, it, it definitely seems like football season is rolling around a lot quicker than usual this year. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with the whole adulting thing. I think that's uh, that's kind of preoccupied us a little bit. And and you know, we still get to uh, put the old pen to paper or uh, uh, you know fingers to uh to keyboard and put out a couple articles from time to time so that's helped expedite the process as well yeah yeah i gotta be better about that start uh start looking forward to all the uh all the new faces that are going to be seen around conference usa this season and uh one new face on FAU staff we just found out within the last couple of days, uh, former Middle Tennessee State quarterback Brent Stockstill is now a personnel assistant, a player personnel assistant rather, on uh, FAU's coaching staff, which if you're going to pick someone to work for in your first coaching job, Lane Kiffin is uh, is a bold bold choice um but uh it should be an interesting dynamic there and you know eric as i'm sure you have already kind of assumed player personnel assistant it's you know a utility job which sounds like kind of the perfect first step if this this is going to be your first coaching job right yeah i mean not even the role for a second if you're a 23 year old guy and i believe my members search correct that brent either just got engaged or just got married i believe he's got engaged um, but you can't pick a better place than, you know, Boca in South Florida to start the, uh, the coaching career out. You know, I've heard the, uh, the horror stories or, or maybe, you know, I guess when you're 40 years down the road, they're not horror stories. You look back at them and laugh, but, uh, coach Davis likes to talk about it a lot at, at FIU where, you know, he started out, uh, at a high school in Oklahoma and then in the seventies, or you're starting out, you know, somewhere, uh, in a much uh, a colder climate. So you can't, you can't be too mad at starting out in Boca, but uh, kind of transitions to the point that you're talking about, you know, learning under Lane Kiffin is, is it's a bold move, but I, I think it's a great move. I mean, coach Kiffin is someone who uh, clearly is, is up with the times as far as uh, the way that college football and offenses are trending in, in, in the direction that they're going in. So you can't be mad at that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just a great experience. His dad, Rick, when I talked to my media days, did mention that Brent seemed to be very excited about starting his coaching career and, one of the things, you know, Rick 
and I'm sure you'll agree with this as well, Joe, uh, Rick sounded just overjoyed and really confident in the idea that Brent will just, you know, pick up the, the, the coaching profession really quickly. Uh, Rick always said, hey, you know, the guy's always had a head for coaching, and, and this has really been his passion. So, you know, great to see him get started. And, and like I said, can't be too mad about starting out in a place that's uh, going to be 85 degrees year-round. Not at all. And uh, like you mentioned, certainly an interesting place to start in terms of uh, who you're learning from there with with Lane Kiffin, who's certainly seen and, and done a lot in his time in D1. But uh, did Brent have NFL prospects? Was he was he on a training camp team or a mini camp or anything like that prior to this? Uh, you know what? To the best of my recollection, he wasn't. Uh, and that's something that Rick kind of talked about as well, that, you know, Brent's always had this aspiration to coach. So, I mean, at this point, you got to kind of think that it, it's just great that he decided to uh, to pursue that immediately instead of, you know, kind of hanging around for a little bit. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that, that Brent did was he went to a Titans minicamp, rookie minicamp for, you know, a, a week or whatever that. I think it's a weekend. Um, but outside of that, that's the only place that he was at as far as professional football-wise. Got it. Yeah, I, I didn't think so, but I just wanted to be sure. But, um, yeah, should be a good first stop for him on what will hopefully be a, uh, a long and fruitful coaching career for the former Blue Raider. And uh, with that, we'll move on to the next topic. We had an uh, article in the Denton News Chronicle, I believe, talking about uh, how balanced Conference USA has been the last couple of years in terms of every team certainly has, uh, has an opportunity to win. There's not really a clear front runner, and the uh, comparison they make in that article is to the American and the success that uh, UCF has been and the kind of clear favorite from, from that league to not only win, but go to the New York six, new year's six, I should say, uh, which they have obviously. And um, basically the fact that the argument being made was the fact that this conference is so balanced, it actually hurts the league's chances of getting a team into the New York New York six. Personally, I think they made a pretty strong argument. There's not really a team that, uh, that stands out too much. I mean, obviously you have teams that, uh, get good enough to win the league. And in the case of like UAB last year, I think kind of towards the the back end of that season, everyone could kind of tell they were, they were the ones that were going to be in position to win it, but it's not, they're not putting enough distance themselves, distance between themselves and their opponents to really think they could contend against some of the, the top 10 teams in the nation, which is what happens when you get to the New Year's Six. Uh, so I think I agree with the overall point of that article. And I think really it's just going to have to come down to one team and one program showing such drastic improvement that there are leaps and bounds ahead of the other teams in this league in order to get to the new year six, which is kind of what FAU started to do two years ago, but um, you know, was just a tad bit short, but uh, Eric, what do you think about that argument as far as uh, whether or not CUSA is too balanced to get a team in the new year six? Yeah, I'm going to kind of take what you said uh, in reverse order here. Cause I think you kind of hit the nail on the head with your second to last sentence there. And let's go ahead and use UCF as an example. I promise I'll be quick here as the UCF alum. Uh, it's not necessarily that the American isn't balanced, because I think there are a lot of good programs, Memphis, Houston, Cincinnati, USF, uh, et cetera, in that league. It's just that the past two and a half years, 
UCF has just been leaps and bounds better than everyone else. And, you know, part of that goes to the play of their great quarterback, Mackenzie Milton. So, I mean, it's not necessarily that that the American hasn't had parity. It's just that one team has kind of taken that step. And you kind of talked about it with FAU. Uh, you know, and it's, it's funny to to think back. That's a team that started out one and three that year that they uh, just, you know, went on a 10-game winning streak and, and ended up winning Conference USA. So to bring it all the way back around to your original question, which is, do I think that parity is bad for the league? I'm going to say no. Um, I am always a believer that the more good teams you have in your league, especially when you are not a Power 5 league, uh, it, it's it's a good thing. Um, I think it goes to, you know, essentially our existence here at UDD, which is that they do play football in more places than Alabama and Michigan, you know. Um, and I think in specificity to Conference USA – this kind of seems like the only season in recent memory as to where it's not really wide open. I mean, I've made the point that I think it's a five-team league, six, uh, if FAU gets their quarterback situation straight and, and if B.J. Emmonsville moves at running back. So I don't think that parity necessarily hurts the league, but I can understand the argument that – I can understand the argument that by not having the one team, for example, the Boise State of the Mountain West, right, who, you know, when we were growing up consistently was coming in, you know, top five in the nation and, and running the table in their conference. Because you don't have that one team, uh, you know, Conference USA can't necessarily as a whole get that shine. Um, I, I understand it, and, and I, don't, I don't disagree with it. But I think just on a personal level, I'm more of a fan of the league being balanced and having some parity. And when, once again, when you look at it in the long run, uh, let's take Boise State's run from, from the one that I just mentioned. The thing that people would always point to is say that, oh, look at their league. They don't play anybody. You know? And some of the teams who are in conference USA now were in that league, such as Louisiana Tech. The same thing can be said about USF, USF UCF, uh, where you know, they tend to try to denigrate their accomplishments over the past years, but then they don't play anybody. And it's not necessarily they don't play anybody. It's just that one team's been leaps and bounds better than the other team. So, uh, you know, all in all, I, I don't think that not having that one team has been bad for the league. I, I guess it just depends on your perspective of, you know, do you think having one team stand out and potentially make that New Year Six Bowl run helps the league in the, in the long run? And, I mean, I think it might, uh, you know, as far as exposure. But in the long run, I, I, I don't necessarily know that it, it – it, it accomplishes what you're looking for. I'm going to go ahead and agree with you on the fact that on a personal level, I definitely enjoy the kind of state that Conference USA is in now where there is parity, and I think it just makes for more entertaining football from a fan's perspective in general. Uh, however, I think kind of the difference between what's going on with Conference USA now and what happened to UCF is that UCF has kind of established this standard of like people expect them to be good and at least contend for that kind of spot. So I think as much as we try to only factor in results from a previous year, you know, I think it'd be kind of naive to think that the committee who, who picks these games isn't factoring in the fact that UCF is a, is a brand now, like people expect them to see, expect to see them rather near the top or at least competing for a spot in one of those games. So I think that definitely helps. And until one of the teams in conference USA, whether it be FAU or North Texas or UAB or whoever uh, starts getting those kind of results on a consistent basis, then I think, you know, 
their cause isn't being helped. But once they start getting to that that point that UCF had where they had runs of getting to at least in the conversation for the New Year's Six on a fairly consistent basis, which they have been, you know, take away that that O and twelve season or whatever it was. Uh, they've been in the conversation more years than than they have, and it feels like. So I think that's kind of the logical next step for this league. Well, let me ask you this one just really quick follow-up here, Joe, because yeah, I think it kind of comes down to this. Because the committee may have that stand that that, that idea in their head that you know UCF, you expect them to compete to compete the same way with that Boise, you know, a decade or so ago. Um, my question for you, Joe, is. Do you look at the American as a stronger conference by virtue of UCF being in the forefront of your mind and thinking, all right, we expect them to compete for a New Year's Six Bowl game? Do I look at the American as a stronger conference as a whole? Is that the question? Or Yeah, yeah I, say, I should clarify that. Not, as a, not stronger in relation to uh, G5 conferences. Do you look at the American as a strong conference as a whole because of the success that UCF has had? Yes and no. I think it's it's kind of for UCF doing well initially kind of made me pay attention to that league more. And then along the way, kind of realized like, oh, Houston's really good. Memphis is definitely getting there. Um, so I, I I don't know that UCF's UCF success definitely helped my perception of the league. Yes. But I, I wouldn't okay. say I think the the top of the American is re- it helped me. UCF success helped me realize that the top of the American is really strong and the bottom is kind of whatever. Whereas with Conference USA, I think I don't think that the top of Conference USA is I don't think it's on the level or better than the top of the American Conference, but I think as a whole Conference USA, all the teams are a little bit closer to each other in terms of skill level whereas I think there's a very wide gap between the top 3 or 4 teams in the American and everybody else. Okay, I'm with you. Before we resume our Conference USA football discussion, we're going to take some time to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors and shout out some of the other great podcasts on the SB Nation Network. Be right back. Um, yeah, staying on that topic, sort of, I think, at least in my opinion, and I was was kind of the kind of something being uh, pointed out in the original article that that prompted this conversation was that North Texas based on their schedule and the recent success they've had could have a chance to get there this year. And if not, if not this year, sometime in, uh, in the near future. So I guess, what are your thoughts on that? I'm really biased on, on this thing, Joe, because I am a believer that in order for a, in order for a non power five program to make a new year six run and kind of have that, consistent, sustained success. And listen, Boise State completely is the outlier. They were able to recruit California well in a way that, you know, just they deserve all kinds of credit for that. But I just believe that non-Power 5 programs, if you're going to have consistent consistent success, they're going to have to be located in states like Texas and Florida, uh, Georgia, you know, really high school heavy football states. So to bring it all the way back around, uh, yeah, I believe that North Texas can make a run, but I think we just kind of touched on it before where this league, it's going to be a fight, you know, every week. I mean, um, 
outside of this year, once again, we know UAB graduated a lot of players, so they not, they might not be as strong as they would be normally. Uh, you know, same thing. Marshall uh, did graduate some players on defense, but they'll still compete. And uh, Middle Tennessee State loses Brent Stock still, but you know they'll still be tough. Um, this league is just so perennially, you know, challenging. In, in that, I just don't think that uh, North Texas can can kind of exert that dominance every year. But in the near future, especially with the um, the type of recruits that Seth Luttrell has coming in, I think put it to you this way: Will they have success on the field? Sure. But, you know, unfortunately, the New Year's Six run comes down to all G5 football and not just Conference USA. So, I mean, that's also going to depend on whether UCF falters anytime soon or USF or Boise or, you know, you name the uh, G5 school, uh, if they're going to have to falter as well. So I think you have to take that into account. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually. I think just looking at their schedule, I don't think it has the – name brands that like UCF schedule, for example, has had in the last couple of years. I think their most like their most intriguing game, I think, is against Houston. Um and then I think they only have one P five opponent on there in, in Cal. Um so I think you know as far as this year goes, they would have to go undefeated and get some pretty significant win margins, in my opinion, to even be in the conversation. But uh yeah, that's a that's a solid opinion in order for them to or it's not even an opinion, it's just a fact if they want to be seriously talked about when it comes to the New Year's Six, they're going to need some of those those teams that are just frankly bigger bigger brand names to lose in, in UCF and Boise State and possibly some of the other ones too. Um, yeah, all good points. Uh, so moving forward on that, then we'll talk about uh, you know one of the one of the position battles on many different teams going into this uh this camp is uh the quarterback spot a lot of teams have like three or four guys that could possibly contend to be qb1 for their respective teams one of those is western kentucky and as we've talked about a lot uh it's going to be a hard decision for tyson helton a couple days ago in the uh bowling green daily news it was indicated that he's kind of leaning towards stephen duncan right now just based on the work he's done in the spring and the summer which makes sense also stephen duncan had a had a pretty decent season last year when he was on the field um davis shanley and uh, kavaris thomas still in the running as well along with the uh grad transfer from arkansas and uh, looks like his plan right now is to just kind of let the competition go into camp and then pick a starter 10 days prior to the first game, which I kind of like that approach. I think there's just there's not enough of a clear divide between all four of these guys right now and uh, would love to kind of explore that with someone who's been a little bit closer to the league on a future episode, hopefully. But uh, I think I think I kind of like Helton's overall approach to this, but I think it's I think it's interesting that, you know, while Duncan certainly makes sense as the choice for QB1 right now, I, I think it's interesting that no one really, I guess it kind of makes sense based on how short spring ball is and the limited amount of workouts they get in the summer. It's, I'm just interested to see who puts enough in to really separate themselves. And I guess we're not going to know that until fall camp. Yeah, I mean, if you've listened to me on this podcast, you kind of know that I kind of lean towards Davis Shanley 
Um, I, I have his numbers pulled up here for a reason. I just want to read off the games who, who he well, – we'll take games that he attempted more than uh, 20 passes. Actually, there's one game against Ball State. He ended up at 19, so we'll say more than 19 passes. Uh, he played in the Louisville loss, went 22-33, 241 touchdown. In the win against Ball State, 13-19, 158, uh, 68% completion percentage. Then he takes the loss against Charlotte, 20-29. Loss against Old Dominion, 24-31 for 257 and two touchdown passes. And then a loss to FIU, 14-25, buck 05. Uh, that was his worst um, outing of the year, 56% completion percentage. I read those off just to say, let's take a look. You got Louisville, who is a level up in competition. Charlotte had one of the better defenses in all FBS football. Uh, FIU, not a great run defense, but – Pass defense-wise, and this is a game that I, I was at, saw firsthand. So I know, I mean, David Shanley got beat up. It's the game where he left with a concussion. So he really didn't have much of a shot there. Uh, you compare his numbers to Stephen Duncan's, and once again, this isn't a slight on Stephen Duncan, but Stephen Duncan overall on the year uh, completed 50, just a shade under 57 or shade under 58% of his passes uh, for nine touchdowns and seven picks. But when you go ahead and take a look at his game log, he's putting up those numbers against – maybe not quite the competition that uh, Shanley played against. You know, UTEP didn't have much of a defense last year. Uh, FAU's defense didn't perform up to expectation. Really, the the major competition he played against was Marshall uh, in a game that he went 24-39, 263, a touchdown and interception. And then he put up two touchdowns in that Ball State game uh, before uh, David Shanley also played as well. So uh, it, it just – I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm making the case out loud for David Shanley, and we don't know what we're going to see from uh, young Kavaris Thomas as well as Ty Story, the Arkansas transfer. But I, I just, you know, I think his approach overall makes sense. But I, I guess I was really impressed with what I saw with David Shanley, and I'd like to see him get another shot uh, with maybe an improved offensive line in 2019. I will agree that David Shanley had, uh, had some really solid performances last year, particularly in that Louisville game, how they managed to uh, – <laughs> how they managed to not win that game, I'm still kind of surprised. But, uh, yeah, I think he, he's just a little bit better runner, too, and I like that. I, I definitely liked it better for the kind of system that uh, Sanford had in place as head coach because, you know, it just – they put so much faith in the run game, and frankly, that faith was undeserved. So I, I liked having a quarterback that could be able to make – something happened when when everything kind of fell apart in, fr- in terms of the original play or the blocking or whatever. And hopefully that doesn't happen as much. Hopefully there's a the off- there's an offensive line in there for WKU this year that can at least establish a pocket. And they've definitely had issues doing that the last two seasons. So that's that's kind of why my initial hesitation is there when I'm talking about naming Stephen Duncan the guy. And I, I kind of sense that with you too, because, you know, because of his ability to to run the ball, I think Shanley definitely makes sense for what, at least to me, what is still there along the offensive line. It's a lot of guys who haven't, you know, sorry, but haven't done anything super impressive the last two seasons. And hopefully some of these new faces can kind of make something happen. And from what I've seen also, it seems like Kavaris Thomas is a lot of the same skill set with possibly even a higher ceiling. 
So that's it makes it even more weird that he didn't get really any meaningful snaps uh, the last last two seasons. Last season. Is he a sophomore? Something like that. Anyway, the point is, I think you're right, Eric, in saying that David Shanley should probably be more heavily considered to be the guy just based on what we know he can do with his legs. So, No, no, you're, you're there. And, and Kavaris Thomas is entering a, his, his redshirt sophomore year. So last year would have been his first year of eligibility. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah. So certainly makes sense there. Hopefully the tops get that sorted out before uh, the season goes. And they have, uh, they have someone who can at least prove to be the guy consistently and can stay healthy, um, which could bring us back to the, uh, you know, the topic of how bad the offensive line's been the last couple of years. But, you know, I feel like people are just tired of me hearing me whine about that at this point. So with that, we'll just keep talking then about um, something that kind of made the rounds on Twitter the other day. And that was video of uh, LSU's actually new facility. And it's just, it's crazy. It seems like the kind of like clubhouse you dream about having when you're a kid. But anyway, um, it kind of like a it, it shows really the the divide in facilities that exist between P five and G five, but also kind of got us thinking about what the best facilities in uh, in Conference USA in particular are right now. Now, Eric, I'm not well traveled enough within this league to really have a hard opinion about about most of the schools in this league. However, I know you've kind of been around the block a little bit in terms of visiting these these stadiums at least and some of these facilities that these teams train and practice in uh based on what you've seen who do you think kind of uh is leading the facilities arms arms race within conference usa yeah so it's funny just you know you had talked about you know what lsu has and one of these days uh either on the podcast or somewhere publicly i would like to tell a story that really um, is indicative of just the level of, you know, inadequacy or not inadequacy, not inadequacy, but just the different playing level between uh, P5s and G5s. But you know, I can't tell that publicly. One of these days, I will. Uh, to come around to your question, um, I, I've seen a couple facilities firsthand. You know, I've seen um, what FAU is working with, and you know, uh, you kind of worry about offending a fan base here when you when you, you talk about this topic. But this isn't something that you know. Coach Kiffin or anyone around FAU has been shy about. You know, the facilities we're lacking at FAU. Um, they're undergoing phase one of the Smith Family Complex, which, you know, great for them because they have the funding and seems to be heading in the right direction. But I remember a quote from Lane Kiffin saying, uh, it was during his first season, saying that we were 100 years behind normal places. So uh, they're still getting things in progress um, at FAU's. Uh, FIU, you know, once again, cover that program, so see it all the time. Uh, the uh, R. Kirkland and Fieldhouse was built in 2009. Adequate facility, you know, gets the job done. Uh, Chad Smith does a great job with uh, with the weight training program there with football. Um, the ones that I'd say really impressed me the most, uh, you guys have heard me on this podcast talk about my travels to Charlotte. Uh, they're one of the newer programs in FBS football, so as a result, their programs are new. Excuse me, their facilities are new, and what they have is, is, is attached uh, to Jerry Richardson Stadium, their field house is there. Uh, so that's only about, I believe, six or seven years old. Uh, Marshall has an indoor facility. It's the Chris Klein Athletic Complex, which I just had to go back and check to see kind of how much money was put into these things. And they, they spent about $20 million for their indoor facility. But that's always great when you can kind of have that, you know, that bubble just kind of provides that, um, for lack of a better phrase, you know, like 
Power Five feel and maybe a G5. Um, Southern Miss has, and this is one that I, I haven't seen firsthand, but I've had to do some research. Uh, they have a giant facility. It's, it's the Duff Athletic Center, which is about 65,000 square feet. It's attached to Robert Stadium. So that one, you have to say, I mean, it's just, it's just really good as well. Um, I've seen, just having been through Birmingham, uh, what the fundraising helped get UAB and their return to FBS football and their facilities really stand out as well as being really good. So, you know, I think just overall, it, it, to bring it around to all of Conference USA, what I'd say is that outside of FAU, which, you know, they're getting there, you know, um, you don't really see any facilities that are really, you know, just really outdated and, and dilapidated. Um, most programs at least have plans for something in place, kind of like UTSA. I know their athletic director, Lisa Campos, has, has enough plans for a um, like a $50 million facility uh, in San Antonio. So there's either plans for something in place or the facilities are, are relatively new. So, you know, that's great to hear that the athletes in conference are, are at least having uh, good facilities to work out at. Before we resume our Conference USA football discussion, we're going to take some time to tell you a little bit more about our sponsors and shout out some of the other great podcasts on the SB Nation Network. Be right back. Who, in your opinion, has the worst facilities? <laughs> of course. Um, I, I don't think what I'm about to say is controversial. Um, well, put it to you like this. I haven't seen what UTSA currently is in. Um, so I, I don't necessarily feel like I shouldn't, like I should just exclusively say FAU only because I've seen it opposed to what UTSA has, but I, I, I would feel safe saying FAU, but once again, it, it's not that they aren't building towards the future. It's that it, it's the one thing. And I mean, once again, remember that F, they, they put a ton of money into FAU stadium, which is a great facility as well. Um, so the practice facilities really are, um, they're, they're lacking, but there's plans for the future. But to answer your question, I would, it's a combination of what I've seen and also what's older. And I would, I would say, you know, a toss between FAU uh, and UTSA. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I, I get that based on the, just the way that the media kind of covers UTSA and FAU for that matter, that uh, that's probably a pretty safe assumption. Haven't been to either myself yet, but uh based on all the information that's out there, probably safe to say. Eric, before I let you go for this show, saw on Twitter uh, earlier today, actually, that uh, you've come around to the Chicken Tender Pub Sub at Publix based on uh, the way you order it. Someone told you a new way to order that sandwich, and now I, I have to know, what is it? Okay, so uh, for those of you who I, I think actually – um, I wish I had done the research off the top of my head to see, I mean, just, okay, I'll try this really quickly on the fly. FAU, FIU, yes. Um, UAB, yes. I'm just thinking of places that have publics in their um, Conference USA schools that have publics. So I apologize for not knowing that off the top of my head. Um, Publix has phenomenal subs. I mean, I don't care where you go. I lived in Chicago for two and a half years. The place that's known for their sandwiches, I will put a pub sub up against any sub in this nation and say it is phenomenal. The um, sub that gets the most attention is the chicken tender sub. I cannot tell you how many times, Joe, during my college years, uh, plenty of my roommates decided, hey, you know, we're low on cash. That four bucks that you would spend at Taco Bell, maybe feed yourself for the week, uh, just find an extra 25 cents to get a pub sub. 
and you only feed yourself for the day, but it was a damn good sub. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chicken tender sub was the um, most talked about sub of the bunch. I found the thing to be horribly overrated. It was just, you know, chicken tenders chopped up on bread. Really, really good bread, don't get me wrong, and great condiments. Uh, the word I said there was condiments. But um, <laughs> I, I just found it to be overrated. To answer your question, how did I order it that changed my mind? I, I'm not a big fan of, like, tossing things in sauce. I did not know that you need to toss the chicken tenders in some type of sauce. So I ordered it tossed in buffalo and honey mustard, and that was a game changer. Uh, just the, the tenderness of the meat, uh, how juicy it was. Uh, I'm sure someone will make this clip into some sort of just recording of myself talking about tender and juicy and meat. I digress. Uh, it was amazing, and I would absolutely recommend it, especially on five-grain bread with either smoked gouda or cheddar. Now, you went with the buffalo and honey mustard on one sandwich. I, I, I went aggressive. I went aggressive. I wanted kind of that spicy with kind of like the savory sweet, and I would wholly recommend it. Interesting. I'm intrigued. I've, I've, never, I've never been so bold myself as to mix buffalo and honey mustard sauce. Mm-hmm. I like both. So, you know what? We'll, we'll see what happens next time. I'm either at a Publix or some other chicken establishment. But, uh, hey, you know, I'm, gl- I'm glad you finally come around on this thing that's brought so many people such joy. Hey, you've seen firsthand just how much uh, response I get on Twitter when I post anything about the beloved uh, pub sub, especially the chicken tender sub. <laughs> yeah. I think as you were talking about where are they, I know obviously they're in Florida. I don't think they're in Texas, but I'm sure people will correct us if, if we're wrong. I want to say yeah. – yeah, it's probably all the Gulf Coast states. Right, yeah. It's, they're not, I was just going to say, you know, that I know they're not in Texas, but they're, they're just in most of, like, the southern, like, Gulf Coast area. So you were, you were, uh, you're correct. Yeah. I never, never saw any in Kentucky. I doubt they're in West Virginia and, and uh, Virginia, as far as, like, where Conference USA teams are. I wonder if they're, I wonder if they're in North Carolina. I, feel I, like, I believe they are. I believe they are in North Carolina. Because I, 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 I have family who lives in North Carolina. I think they, they are there. Okay, that's what I thought. So the only, the only one I'm confused on is uh, Tennessee. So I don't know. Let us know if, if you have Publix in your state. With that, we'll go ahead and start wrapping up then. Thank you, everybody, once again for listening. We really, really appreciate it. Uh, check us out on iTunes and Google Play. Subscribe if you haven't already. Rate us five stars if we deserve it and uh, leave a review. That really helps the show grow. Also, um, check out underdogdynasty.com every day for more G5 football goodies, especially as we get closer to the season here. And uh, you can follow the site social media at Underdog Dynasty on Twitter and Facebook. And then we are at J-O-E-H-I-O underscore and at Eric C. Henry underscore. Thanks again so much go uh go get you a chicken tender pub sub enjoy the rest of your week or weekend depending on when you're listening and happy football watching everybody